Lord, grant us grace to hear your word and respond in obedience. Please be seated. These are difficult times in almost every focus of our lives. In a time not unlike our own, a German pastor wrote a powerful book describing the building of the community in the context of an underground seminary. This took place during the Nazis' domination of Germany. The book entitled Life Together shows how community can be built in the most difficult times. Dietrich Bonhoeffer describes how families and groups in different configurations can mature in their faith by personal prayer, worship in small groups, and service to one another in the whole community. Now Bonhoeffer, a very faithful pastor, became involved in resistance to Hitler's damaging leadership. Hitler kept promoting a nationalism that obviously had an appeal to people who were struggling with severe economic issues. He also promoted the idea of a superior Aryan race. The consequence of that was an intention to extinguish and exterminate the Jews. But Bonhoeffer regularly preached from his pulpit against the nationalistic mania that had gripped so many citizens who seemed to blindly follow Hitler's narcissistic energy. As a consequence of his involvement and his preaching, he was martyred by the Gestapo in 1945. So many parallels exist between Bonhoeffer's life in the underground seminary and our current situation that has changed our normal life in the presence of the coronavirus. It's been changed for the duration of the virus, this invisible enemy that has assaulted us. And I suspect even when the virus is managed and ended, our lives will be changed significantly. Because right now, our shattered political world has placed Christians in a disenfranchised group. There is significant silencing of the gospel in the public square. Changes happen in so many different contexts that it's easy to become overwhelmed and confused. The political establishment has become polarized. We can no longer trust the media. They will not give us really the truth. Truth is now relative. What is your truth? What is my truth? What is someone else's truth? So where does this leave us? Where do we go for truth that is dependable, reliable, and absolute? Obviously, as Christians, we find reliable truth in the Word of God. Paul's letter to the church in Thessalonica served to provide encouragement that result in the maturation of faith and conduct. It is a letter that is incredibly important for this hour. It's important to understand what the church in Thessalonica was like, what its context is like. When we read scripture, it's important to understand the context. Because sometimes if we don't deal with scripture as we should, we tend to take one or two verses out and imply it in a way that the author of the scripture never intended. One of my favorite New Testament scholars said there are three rules for interpretation. The first is context. The second is context. And the third is context. The first epistle of Thessalonica is written to a church in conflict. Apparently, the leaders of the congregation had chastised some members for misconduct. Some had stopped working and were depending upon the largest of others while they waited for the parousia, the second coming. While it shouldn't be necessary to state the fact that God 
his appointed leaders in every Christian congregation, Paul has to remind many in that congregation to respect their leaders. Now this is a difficult thing for some, and for others it seems unnecessary, because people in their own individualism intend to say that I have a right to teach, act, and speak, even if that speaking creates conflict in the congregation. However, we must remember that God never intended for the church to be a democracy. The scripture is clear. Respect for God-ordained leadership is essential for order in the church. Of course, we are expected to test their teaching. We don't have to listen to everything without questioning, is it in context of the scripture? Priests and deacons are not perfect people. They make mistakes. Paul's message is to esteem them highly, love for their work's sake, and be at peace among yourselves. The task of leadership is to labor, to lead, and to teach. Now, part of that teaching, part of that labor, part of that action is the discipline that needs to apply to all of us. There's always a need for discipline in the church. I've served in non-liturgical churches that had no means that would function as discipline, or if they did have a plan of discipline, it was kind of loose and flabby depending on the agreement of the total congregation. The consequences of the absence of discipline in any church is confusion, chaos, and disruption. In one church that I served, a particular small group of members organized to work against the leadership by disrupting members, challenging the value of leaders, picking the budget apart. This created an internal move that made it so difficult for the new pastor to serve as senior pastor that he would become discouraged and leave. And, in fact, he did leave. When I recommended to the the leadership that these people be removed from their positions of committees and other things, Some felt, well, we need to be careful of that because it might create too much division, as if there were not enough division and confusion already. The result of failing to discipline them in a constructive manner, leading to restoration, was that many people began to leave the church because the the unrest was so evident that they felt uncomfortable. Paul says that leaders are to warn those who are unruly, uphold the weak, be patient with all, and see that no one renders evil for evil. Always pursue what is best for all. Now, discipline has a purpose. It's intended to be experienced in the life of the whole congregation. And the goal of discipline is not intended to be destructive, but aiming toward the greater good. It serves to provide balance and peace. Godly discipline does not have a goal of destruction of persons but it means of admonishing to correct behavior leading to restoration. The goal of discipline always is to restoration. And so when there is godly leadership, the unruly will be admonished, those who are overwhelmed will be comforted and strengthened and led to growth in their personal and spiritual lives. Some have suggested that the church is really a hospital after all, where wounded, overwhelmed, and hurting individuals will find healing, growth, and peace that will lead to continued growth in their lives. Now it's easy for many of us to relish judgment and adopt an attitude of superiority. We know what is best, we know what is right. 
It takes moral and spiritual courage to stand against the forces of retaliation. You say, retaliation in the church? Yes, sometimes people don't get their own way or they don't agree with what the leaders have done, and so they retaliate. The message of those who retaliate is to the, to the leader, to the pastor, to the rector, if you don't do it our way and say what we want you to say, we're out of here. My experience as a pastor has been that people who leave for reasons of retaliation go to another place, eventually became, go about with the same behavior in that congregation and create disrest as well. Now, since we've looked at the role of godly leadership and the importance of discipline, Paul now turns to some processes for growth in the congregation. There are three things, he said, that will help the congregation to grow, that will help our spiritual lives and help us become the kind of people that God wants us to be. The first, he said, is rejoice always. Now, when I read that, I thought, wait a minute. Does this mean we are to be a people who are happy all the time? There are some folks who seem to be smiling even when they're gritting their teeth with pain. But the command to rejoice always is not commanded always to be happy because that is not possible. Feeling happy is possible when we're celebrating with family and enjoying those special relationships that warm our hearts. So what is the difference between joy and happiness? Obviously, happiness is the feeling of elation when things are pleasant and predictable. I won't be happy, however, when my refrigerator stops as it did and I have to throw out all the contents or when my car breaks down, or when I have chronic pain. Joy is, joy is always one of those things that comes about when we have a good circumstance and know that the certainty of God's love and care, because the reality is that Jesus is the foundation and fountain of true joy in the midst of all tragic circumstances. When I sit beside the bedside of a dying patient who is following Jesus Christ, I can rejoice that there's a certainty about their eternal destiny. I have fond memories of visiting daily with a woman at the Kaplan Hospice. We had talked almost every day about her confidence in God, and she would say to me, I'm still on the journey, but I'm not through the veil yet. And on the day that she died, she said to me, my toe is through the veil. What a difference that was from visiting with other people uh, who do not have the same grace and truth in their lives, do not have the same hope. Now, this does not mean that there's no grief for the surviving family. Of course, there is grief. Good grief, godly grief, takes time. But gradually, a person can find solace in the knowledge of the faith of the loved one lost. If the first requirement that Paul offers us a means of growth as in our life together is to rejoice and find con true contentment. The second requirement for growth is a little more difficult even. He says, pray without ceasing. Now, Paul, what do you mean pray without ceasing? Does mind mean that we must be talking directly to God 24 hours a day? That would be impossible. Now, I talk to myself a lot as I wander around the house and Jen says, are you okay? You're talking to yourself again. But it's not just talking to God 
that makes the difference. One commentator says, it is not the moving of the lips, but the elevation of the heart to God that is the essence of prayer. Praying without ceasing is at the heart of the life turned to God. It's a constant function of realizing that all of our life takes place in the presence of God. All of our life, constantly in the presence of God. Well, that truth is both a blessing and a cause for concern, particularly for me when I consider some of my behavior, particularly in driving in these highways. Is this idea of constancy of God's watching over us in all things something we can know and be aware of 24 hours a day? Of course not. It's impossible for this kind of constant sense of God's presence to be in an awareness all of the time. So we need to think about how this can be worked out because Paul is not making an impossible command. I rejoice always and pray without ceasing commands. Well, yes, they are. The language, the mood of the language is imperative. That means it is a command. Henri Nouwen says, there's an activity that is taking place in our brains, consciously and unconsciously. That activity is thinking, reflecting on tasks, processing frustration, working through sorrow and grief, and every task is part of our daily experience. All this takes place in the presence of God, even without our conscious awareness. For example, when we read scripture and study scripture together, or in our own lives, Sometimes when we read words that we've read over and over again, one of those words begins to penetrate our hearts and begin to change something in our awareness of God's presence. The Holy Spirit is speaking to us directly at that time. So it helps us to have a discipline of reflecting on what we read in Scripture in order for our minds to be alerted to see how it applies to our lives. But we also reflect on what we see and hear in the media All of this takes place in the presence of God. So how does this shape our awareness of the presence of God in our lives? It it might change our viewing habits. Some of the things that we tend to listen to and to watch are not godly. The third command is, in everything give thanks, for there's a will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is a natural next step in the growth of our personal lives. Is it really possible or even desirable to give thanks for everything? I'm aware that there are some teachers who insist that this is possible and necessary, but I have a problem with this. There are so many things in our personal lives and even more broadly in our public lives and experience that are not foundation for thanksgiving. How can we thank God for this virus that has killed so many around the world? Surely Paul has something different in mind In order to thank God for something difficult, we have to develop a different perspective, as it were, a God's eye view of life. Therefore, the foundation of our perspective rather, is to be thankful that God is sovereign in all things. That's the key for me, to be aware of the fact that God is sovereign in all things. Nothing escapes his notice. Even so, many things and events that take place are difficult for us. The reality is that God is at work in the lives of his children. He is the one who gives good things to us for which we are easily thankful. But there are many other circumstances that don't seem to make any sense at the moment. One of my favorite narratives in the Bible is how God shaped the lives of a dysfunctional family through the long view. I'm talking about the life of Joseph and his brothers. 
It's a beautiful story. Joseph was a favorite son of his father. His brothers were jealous of him. They took him one day as he came to bring a message from his father. They took him, put him in a pit, and sold him as a slave. He had the job in Potiphar's household, you remember, and Potiphar's wife kept enticing him, but he ran. But Potiphar, when he heard about it, put him in prison. And in prison, Joseph was there languishing until he interpreted the dream of someone. And Potiphar was so, and Pharaoh was so impressed with this when he heard about it that he brought him in. And Joseph gradually became elevated to a position directly underneath Pharaoh, management of all of the land of Egypt. When his brothers and family actually came into a famine, they sent the brothers first to Egypt to secure food. There's a long story which you all know about. But one of the things that's impressive, they didn't recognize Joseph when they first came. When he finally revealed himself to them, of course they were afraid. How would he retaliate? But he said to them, you meant it to me for evil, but God meant it to me for good. That's the long view that Joseph could have, even despite all of his suffering and injustice that he'd experienced. For we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. It is not that things work together for good, but that our sovereign God works together for the good of all things. The pathway to maturity is obedience to God's plan for our lives. Obedience is not always easy because we cannot see the road ahead. To walk in faith is difficult because we cannot see around the curve. Advent is a season of waiting and expectation. Waiting is sometimes difficult because even in this confusing physical, social, and political confusion, we must remember that God is at work to accomplish his sovereign purpose. We don't understand how he lets certain things happen, but he's still at work. With Paul, we say, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. From our knowledge of the fact that the absolute goodness of God, we can agree, we can follow and obey with zeal. The psalmist wrote, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the watercourses in the neighbor. May those who sow in tears reap with shouts of joy. Those who go out weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, carrying their sheaves. Amen. Amen.